You know, we've been uh, looking at the book of James for several weeks now, and we're actually getting toward the end of our study. And as we began, we entitled this series, A Simple and Steady Faith. And that's because James has been describing to us in these kind of direct and simple ways how we are to have a faith that is basic, that's simple, that has the foundation there, and is a steady faith that's a day-to-day and growing in Jesus kind of faith. But you could have taken the same sections of Scripture. We could have entitled this study a series of choices and decisions as well. Because when you look at the book of James, what he's really been doing is calling us to a series of choices to make, a series of decisions that we need to face. Decisions that are going to determine whether we are really walking with the Lord in an authentic way. Are we really truly living by His wisdom? And not only in terms of coming into a relationship with Him, but being able to see whether where I am in my life now, am I continuing on this path of being in an intimate and true relationship with the Lord as I walk with Him according to His wisdom? He's told us, you know, we can choose between trusting God and His wisdom and asking for it, or doubting and leaning on our own understanding and perspective instead. We have the choice of whether we're going to give in to the temptation to sin that comes out of our sin nature, or whether we will choose godliness by His grace. Are we going to allow the Word of God to both reveal our sin and grow in us and transform us? Or are we going to look at the Word of God and then simply walk away unchanged? And then are we going to stand on a claim to our relationship with Jesus, even though there's little evidence in our lives and behavior? Or are we going to demonstrate the authenticity of our faith by godly behavior and spiritual fruit? And those are just some of the choices, some of the decisions that James has brought us to in the different passages that we've been looking at. And then last week, he has brought us to perhaps the most important one up to this point. And that was the choice of whether we're, and that was two weeks ago, whether we're going to live by godly wisdom or ungodly wisdom. As a review, looking at chapter 3 here in James in verse 13, he had looked at these two kinds of wisdom and he wrote, Who is wise and understanding among you? Let them show it by their good life, by deeds done in the humility that comes from wisdom. But if you harbor bitter envy and selfish ambition in your hearts, do not boast about it or deny the truth. Such wisdom does not come down from heaven, but is earthly, unspiritual, and demonic. For where you have envy and selfish ambition, there you will find disorder in every evil practice. But the wisdom that comes from heaven is first of all pure, then peace-loving, considerate, submissive, full of mercy and good fruit, impartial and sincere. Peacemakers who sow in peace reap a harvest of righteousness. Now as we come to chapter 4, that choice that James gave us between godly wisdom and ungodly wisdom leads us to this final choice, this final question for us to to deal with this morning. Will I choose to draw close to God? Will I make the choice to draw close to God? 
Ultimately, that's the defining choice of my life, whether it's the choice to give my life to Jesus Christ to initiate that relationship or whether it's the daily choice that I make to draw close to God. The only way that I can walk with God is to grow close to Him. The only way that I will truly live by godly wisdom is if I draw close to God relationally. And that's what James is going to be talking about here this morning as we look at chapter 4. Now, it's important to understand the context of these verses because James is actually talking about the core issue that's a part that's, that's at the foundation of all of this controversy and the conflict that's, being, that's happening in these churches. You can draw it down to this one thing. There are people in those churches, including some of the teacher leaders, who are claiming to be walking with God and living by the teachings of Jesus, who even believe that they are living by godly wisdom when in fact they are not. In fact, they are living by ungodly wisdom and self-understanding. He kind of brought that together in chapter 3 in verse 15 as he talked about where this wisdom actually comes from. He said that it's earthly and unspiritual and demonic. It's, and we saw last week or two weeks ago that it's earthly means that it comes from the beliefs and values of our world and culture. It is unspiritual in that it's actually coming out of the desires and impulses of our sin nature. And ultimately it's demonic because all of this are part of the lies and deceptions of Satan. And his point to them is you think you're living by godly wisdom, but you're living by wisdom that's earthly, unspiritual, and ultimately demonic, and so actually you're deceiving yourselves. You're deceiving yourselves, he said. The evidence is seen by the fact that as he looks at these churches, there's just, there is discord and conflict instead of the seeds of peace reaping a harvest of God's righteousness in the lives of the church believers there in the church ministries. And so he comes into chapter 4, and he says, here's the thing. You've got to make a choice. It's two roads. You're on this road of using ungodly wisdom to live your lives. You need to stop, change direction, and you need to draw close to God. You need to draw close to God. He's going to bring out the challenge, and that is the fact that living by the world's beliefs and values is producing this conflict. But then he's going to turn and say, but drawing close to God with humility will lead to experiencing his grace and his mercy. So he starts by talking about living by the world's beliefs and values will produce conflict. Now, we can understand the directness because this passage i mean he's got some he he comes down pretty bluntly here in some of these verses and the reason he does that is because remember he's challenging a group of people who are deceiving themselves and they need to change direction in their lives but they don't understand that yet and so he comes at them with this very direct but not harsh approach of saying hey here's where you are but here's where you need to go 
Now, if you come to this passage of Scripture and you are walking with God, if you are living by His godly wisdom, then these verses will stand simply as a warning, hey, stay on the road. (laughs) But if you are a part of that, a part of the church where there is that ungodly wisdom and perspective that is bringing the conflict and the tensions in the church, then you need to change direction. And so that's why he comes at him very directly. And he starts by saying, you know what? Because you're living by the world's beliefs and values, you're in conflict with each other. You're in conflict with each other. In verse 1 here in chapter 4, he says, What causes fights and quarrels among you? We know that that means he's saying, Why are there fights and quarrels among you? These things are happening. They're taking place. The word fight actually means to have a serious and prolonged conflict. It was a word that was often translated war in other Greek literature. It's the idea this is this is a deep, comprehensive, and long-lasting conflict that they're in. The word quarrel has to do with specific arguments and conflicts over specific things. And it would, could be used to talk about a battle that took place within the broader context of a larger war. And that's the picture that, he's got, that he paints here. And so what he's saying is you've had this series of quarrels, these disputes, these conflicts, and because you're not resolving them properly, you've actually expanded that into an actual war. Expanded it into a much broader conflict, this long-lasting conflict amongst yourselves. And what makes these fights and quarrels particularly damaging is how they're being handled. And he talks about that down in verse 11, where he says, Brothers and sisters, do not slander one another. Anyone who speaks against a brother or sister or judges them speaks against the law and judges it. As they're in these conflicts, they're slandering each other. That word means to speak ill of someone. It's to level harsh criticism or even condemnation upon someone else. And it's being done with the malicious intent. You want to discredit someone by attacking their reputation so that you diminish them in the eyes of other people. You are not just saying something that's false or inaccurate because while usually when you slander someone, it might be flat-out false, a lot of times it's at least inaccurate or unbalanced. That's not the point because what you say about that person might even be true. Slander is not about whether it's true or false. It's about the intent you have in sharing it. And if you intend to diminish somebody's reputation... You've slandered them. And James says, stop. He then talks about judging. He says, stop judging each other. And that means to judge someone's character, motives, and actions in a way that condemns them. You look at them, you evaluate them, and in your eyes, they're wrong. Or maybe they're bad, or they're creating the problem, or whatever it is that you arrive at, but you've judged them, and they have been found guilty in your eyes. And so again, you put the two together. I'm in conflict with somebody. I'm agitated. I I think they're dead wrong, and I want you to agree with me, so I tell you why they're wrong, and now I've slandered them. And now you're getting camps of people that are starting to gather in odds against each other, and that's what's happening in these churches. And so he says, because you guys are approaching 
your relationship with each other, with the world's beliefs and values, you're in conflict with each other. You're fighting, you're quarreling, you're slandering, and you're judging each other. And he's talking about this happening in the church because he said this is happening among you. It's happening among you. Now, the issue that James is addressing here is not that there's disagreements. It's not that there's debates. It's not even that there's conflicts because those things will happen in any group of people, especially families, whether they're biological or whether they're a church family. Stuff like that happens. But it's how do you handle those things when they come up? Now, the world, and especially as we see the world around us today, you immediately judge somebody you immediately begin to slander them because you want other people to join you in whatever point of view you want to champion. And you will fight any way you need to in order to win. That's how the world does it. And James' point is that's not how believers do it, though. That's not how believers do it. Now, the thing is, these conflicts come from us asserting ourselves to get what we want. There's something that we want and we're asserting ourselves in order to get it. He says, first of all, that these are desires, they actually come from within us. They're that battle within you, he says. Don't they come, in verse 1, don't they come from your desires that battle within you? It starts within ourselves. The conflict I have with somebody else didn't start with that person. It starts with something that happens inside of me. It starts inside of me. And he talks about this desires that battle. He's talking about the fact that the desires and impulse of my sin nature is that battling with the Holy Spirit and what he wants to do in my life. It's a little bit like if you're old enough to remember the cartoons where the guy is facing a moral decision and there's an angel on one shoulder and a demon on the other and they're both speaking to the person at the same time trying to gain influence. Paul talks about this in Galatians chapter 5 where he says... So I say, walk by the Spirit, and you will not gratify the desires of the flesh. For the flesh desires what is contrary to the Spirit, and the Spirit what is contrary to the flesh. They are in conflict with each other, so that you are not to do whatever you want. What he's saying there at the end is, do not do or say the first thing that comes to your mind, because it's probably coming from your sin nature. You've got to pause for a moment and make sure the Holy Spirit is in control of what you're about to do or what you're about to say. And so you have this inner conflict. And when we give over to those desires and impulses that are coming out of our sin nature, then we move to the next, into verse 2. He says, you desire but do not have, so you kill. That's the fact that this desire is so strong that I will hurt and even harm other people to get what I want. Jesus addressed this in Matthew chapter 5, verses 21 and 22. He said, You have heard that it was said to the people long ago, You shall not murder, and anyone who murders will be subject to judgment. But I tell you, anyone who is angry with a brother or sister will be subject to judgment. Again, anyone who says to a brother or sister, Raka, is answerable to the court. And anyone who says, You fool, will be in danger of the fire of hell. He takes the severity of killing somebody physically and says, but it's the same thing as when you use your words as a weapon. 
The word raka means calling someone stupid. It was to question somebody's intelligence. To call somebody a fool was to claim that they were godless. And it was to question their character. And Jesus equates this to killing. And James picks up on that here in this passage. He goes on, and that's why he said in James uh, here in 4, 11 and 12, he refers to this as judging and slandering. He goes on and he says in the, in the next verse, or the next part of verse 2, he says, you covet, but you cannot get what you want, so you quarrel and fight. This word covet is a much stronger word than desire, and it's the idea of the level of determination we have to get what we want, to fight for what we want. I will go to the point of even fracturing and destroying the church itself in order to get what I want. He says, then he goes on and he says, you do not have, you do not receive, I'm sorry, you do not have because you do not ask God. Here's the whole point, isn't it? In all of this, I'm not bringing God into it at all. I, I don't stop for a moment and ask God what he thinks. I'm so focused on getting what I want that I don't bring God into it. I don't ask him what he thinks. I don't go to his word to find out what he has said. It's just all coming out of myself, my desire, my determination to get what I want. And that's fueling this conflict. And then he goes on and says in verse 3, when you ask, you do not receive because you ask with the wrong motives that you may spend what you get on your own pleasures. He says, here's the thing. You're so focused on getting what you want that when you do pray, you want God to be your ally to help you get what you want. You do not pray to him as Lord that you're ready to submit to. And so God won't answer that prayer. And the thing is, is we continue through here, not only are we in conflict with each other, but ultimately this determination to get what we want puts us in the conflict with God himself. He goes on and he says in verse 4, You adulterous people, don't you know that friendship with the world means enmity against God? Therefore, anyone who chooses to be a friend of the world becomes an enemy of God. When you and I are fighting and quarreling with each other, ultimately we're fighting and quarreling with God himself. When I am in conflict with someone else, especially another believer, I'm also in conflict with God. And he says that we have that friendship with the world. Talks about friendship with the world. It's important, again, that we stay in within context to understand what exactly does James mean about friendship with the world because it's probably not exactly what most of us think if we just glance at this passage. He's talking about the issues that are, that are in these churches. He's talking about the jealousy the competitiveness, the arguing, and the slandering that's going on. And he's saying that all of this interaction and all this conflict is coming out of the fact that you are approaching your relationship with each other in an ungodly way. 
And going, again, one last time, going back to 315, you're using wisdom and insight and perspective that's unspiritual. These are things that are coming out of your sin nature. They're earthly. They are reflecting the values and tactics of the world. They're ultimately demonic because you're being deceived by Satan's lies. You think you're serving God and his purposes when you're doing this, but in reality, you're not. You're serving your own. And James says, when we are doing these things, when this is where we're getting our perspective, you are now a friend of the world. You're now doing things the way the world does them. And that makes you a friend of the world. Bottom line is that James is saying, you cannot be seeking your own agenda and God's purposes at the same time. You cannot walk with God and fulfill his purposes by using the values and the tactics of the world. And so, if we find ourselves here, if we do find ourselves with these kind of conflicts going on, if we do find ourselves in this place where we recognize, oh my goodness, yeah, I have been coming out of this out of my own nature. I have been using the world's perspective and tactics. And I have been deceived into thinking I was doing the right thing, but now I understand that, no, this conflict is because of the way I'm approaching it is ungodly. Now what do I do? And James says, make the choice to draw close to God. That's the first thing. You make a choice to draw close to God. One of the things that is so hard to get a a handle on is this. We don't start to resolve conflicts, as James is talking about here, the conflict within ourselves. You know, remember that battle that's going on, the conflict with other people, my conflict with God that is there. I don't start by a behavior modification. I don't start by saying, I I just need to do this different because I can't do it. It's kind of the point. If I'm going to experience a change in this area of my life, if I'm going to be walking with God according to godly wisdom, I first need to draw close to God. And that's what the hinge verse here is in verse 6 where he says, but God gives us more grace. Isn't that great? What he's saying is God's grace is more powerful than all this ungodly stuff that's going on. He's also saying that even when we've given in to this ungodly stuff in our lives, his grace still breaks through. And God opposes the proud, but he shows favor or blessing or grace to the humble. The first step in moving closer to God is to move from pride to humility. We need to move from pride to humility. Because the bottom line is, is everything James is talking about in verses 1 through 5 is simply an expression of pride. Most conflict is. And that's why we find ourselves in conflict not only with each other, but we can find ourselves in conflict with God because God says, I oppose that. (laughs) I won't bless that. And so we begin this movement towards God by recognizing that we need to turn from pride to humility towards God, but also towards each other. 
Now we're in a place where we can begin to experience God's grace and blessing. We can experience his presence and his best, his healing, his forgiveness, his restoration, all the things we need. We begin to do what Paul says in Philippians chapter 2 where he said, Do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit. Rather, in humility, value others above yourselves, not looking to your own interests, but each of you to the interests of others. One of the things that I have discovered in my own life, and I'll share this in case it's helpful to you, this means owning what is mine and leaving what is yours to God. Understand what I'm saying? If I'm in a conflict with somebody, I need to own what is mine. But then I take what's yours and I give that to God. I don't hold it against you and I don't demand anything from you. And now I'm ready to turn with humility to the Lord. And in doing that, I move from self-assertion to submission. Notice he goes on to say, Submit yourselves then to God, verse 7. Submit yourselves then to God. Instead of asking God to give me what I want, I begin to ask God to show me what he wants. Instead of wanting and, and demanding what I want, I ask God what he wants, and then I give to him this intention to submit to it. God, you reveal what you desire me to do. You show me in your word and the Holy Spirit, you speak to me and you show me what I need to do in this moment with this relationship and this situation, with this decision. And as you show me, even though it goes against my nature, I will submit to it. Even if it goes against my nature, I'll submit to it. And I move from self-assertion to submission. When you're thinking about the church when a group of believers in a church family will come together in prayer and they will humble themselves to God and humble themselves toward each other and they will go from asserting to submitting to the Lord together and we go to prayer together and we say, now God, show us what you have for us. Wow, big stuff happens. God gives direction. God resolves conflict. God takes us someplace new. The next thing is we move from being bound by Satan's deceptions to being freed by God's truth. Second half of verse 7, he says, Resist the devil and he will flee from you. Resist the devil and he will flee from you. Our role model in doing this is Jesus Christ himself. And he gives us us the example of taking the truth of the word of God and prayer and being able to resist Satan and his temptations. In fact, Satan will have to flee. In Matthew chapter 4, we're told in a familiar story that Jesus goes into the wilderness for 40 days, and he takes, he takes that 40 days, and he fasts, and he prays. At the end of the 40 days, Satan appears, and he delivers three temptations. And every one of those temptations is a temptation for Jesus to assert himself to get something that is for his gain. And every time, Jesus replies with the appropriate scripture in return. The third time, we're told, this happened, goes down like this. It says, again, the devil took Jesus to a very high mountain, showed him all the kingdoms of the world and their splendor. All this I will give you, he said, if you will bow down and worship me. 
And Jesus said to him, Away from me, Satan, for it is written, Worship the Lord your God and serve him only. Then the devil left him, and angels came and attended him. The best way to resist temptation in life is with Scripture. It is with an appropriate Scripture that points us to what God wants in that moment or in that decision or in that conflict, whatever it is we're praying against. And when we are prayerfully taking that Scripture, we can say, in the name of Jesus, away from me. And the presence of God will replace the presence of Satan and the temptation, and we will receive his comfort, his grace, his presence, just like Jesus And so we need to move from being bound by Satan's deceptions that James is talking about to being freed by God's truth. And then we move from being distant with God to being close to him. In verse 8, it says, Come near to God, and he will come near to you. Come near to God, and he will come near to you. We start to experience this when we will set aside time in our day to hear from God in his word and to respond in prayer. We call that devotions. We begin to come near to God by taking time to be quiet before the Lord, to let him speak through his word and respond in prayer, and then to seek from him the wisdom we need for that day or for that situation or for that relationship. Again, Jesus is the model for us. In Mark chapter 1, Jesus has an incredibly, incredibly busy day, demanding day, crowds of people, starts at dawn, goes way past midnight. But we're told this about the next day. It says, very early that next morning, while it was still dark, Jesus got up and left the house and went off to a solitary place where he prayed. Simon and his companions went to look for him, and when they found him, they exclaimed, everyone's looking for you. And Jesus replied, let us go somewhere else to the nearby villages so I can preach there also. That is why I have come. So he traveled throughout Galilee, preaching in their synagogues and driving out demons. Everything going on here stipulated that Jesus should have gone back to the village where he was and build on the popularity he had established the day before. But Jesus had spent the morning in prayer, and the Father had given him an insight that he was not there to build a large gathering, but to take the word to each and every village there in Galilee and to minister and heal. And so out of his prayer closet in time with the Lord, he has this insight. And so instead of doing what looked reasonable to man, he goes and he does what is reasonable to his father. But he gained that insight because of a season of prayer. If Jesus had to do that, how much more do we need to do it? If you and I are not spending regular time with God in the word and prayer and seeking his guidance, we are in real danger of what's happening here, and that is slipping into living by our own desires, understanding, and ungodly wisdom. And the thing is, we may be there and not even know it. And so we move from being distant from God by taking time to be close to God. And as we come close to God, there was a sweet lady years and years ago in our church where uh, Denise and I were serving in the youth ministry, and she said, the one danger of getting close to God is this, the brilliance of God's holiness will begin to reveal more and more the shadows of your sin. And that's true. 
And so as we draw close to God, all of a sudden we got things to deal with. And so recognizing that there is sin in my life, we then move to repentance. And that's what James is talking about in this really kind of hard verses in 8 and 9. In verse 8, he says, and he says, Wash your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded. The language here actually comes from the temple in Jerusalem. When a priest entered the courtyard of the main part of the temple where the altar of sacrifice was, Right next to there was this large basin of water. And before the priest could start to function and offer sacrifices on behalf of people, he had to go wash his hands first. And then he would wash his feet. What that symbolized was cleansing because he knew he's a sinner. He knew there was sin in his own life. So how, if I have sin in my life, how can I offer sacrifices for other people's sin? And so that, that meant that before he went into that courtyard, he had already spent a time of confession before the Lord so that his heart is clean. And then he symbolized that by washing with water. And so what James is talking about here is Repentance. Clean yourself up. Receive the cleansing of the Lord through confession. Because he's faithful and just to forgive us and to wash us all the unrighteousness away. Then goes in verse 9, he says, Grieve, mourn, and wail. Change your laughter to mourning and your joy to gloom. And again, he's still talking about repentance here. And he's talking about having a true attitude of sorrow for sin. Taking our sin as seriously as God does. Remember, it's our sin that led Jesus Christ to the cross. It is our sin that Jesus Christ had to die for. It is our sin that God placed upon him in judgment, including the sin I just confessed. Including the sin I just confessed. And so James' point is, don't just sort of glibly say, I'm sorry to God, but have that moment of, true sorrow of understanding of what that sin meant to Jesus on the cross. And have a moment of sorrow that leads to a determination for change. That's repentance. Repentance starts with an awareness of being able to say, yes, that was a sin, but it's not completed until I determine in my heart by the grace of God, I will not do it again. And the sorrow he's talking about in verse 9 is a part of that ministry in my life of the Holy Spirit going, now let's understand the significance of sin. God does not take it lightly, and neither should we. Peter says in 1 Peter chapter 2 that Jesus himself bore our sins in his body on the cross so that we might die to sin and live for righteousness By his wounds you have been healed, for you were like sheep going astray, but now you've returned to the shepherd and overseer of your souls. And in the Beatitudes, Jesus said, Blessed are those who mourn. And he's talking about those who mourn over their sin, for they will be comforted. (laughs) It's good to remember the context of these verses. It's not some wildly sensual sin. He's talking about the sin related to how believers were treating each other. And the fact that they were taking that worldly attitude and perspective into their relationship. 
But then having humbled ourselves before God, we now let him lift us up and bring us back into full fellowship with him. Verse 10, he says, humble yourselves before the Lord and he will lift you up. This whole thing is is a sequencing that you see rolling through these verses. And when I get to that point to where I've truly bore the sorrow for sin, it's like I'm prostrate before the Lord and God reaches down and he lifts you up and restores, brings you back into full fellowship with him. Jesus pictures this moment in the parable of the prodigal son. It's the story where the young man takes his early inheritance from his father and then goes and squanders all of his money in sensual and um, sinful living. And it says that when his son came to his senses, how many of my father's hired servants have food to spare and here I am starving to death. I will set out and go back to my father and say to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and against you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. Make me like one of your hired servants. And so he got up and went to his father. But while he was still a long way off, his father saw him and was filled with compassion for him. And he ran to his son, threw his arms around him and kissed him. The son said to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and against you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. That's humility. That's humility. But then notice, the father said to his servants, Quick, bring the best robe and put it on him. Put a ring on his finger and sandals on his feet. Bring the fatted calf and kill it. Let's have a feast and celebrate. For the son of mine was dead and is alive again. He was lost and he is found. So they began to celebrate. That's God lifting us up. Celebrating our return to fellowship with him. As James would wrap this up, he would tell us, you know what? The main thing here is verse 8. Come near to God and he will come near to you. That's what God wants. That's why God sent Jesus. That's why God created you in the first place. Was to come near to him. Was to be in a right relationship with him. And if you're on the road of walking closely with God, according to his word and wisdom, stay there and keep on walking in the same direction. But if you happen to find yourself on that more worldly road, then rejoice in the fact that God gives more grace. Move from pride to humility. Move from self-assertion to submission. Move from being deceived by Satan's lies to being set free by the truth of God. Move from being distant from God to being close to God. Recognize the sin that God is revealing in your life and move to repentance. And as you move to repentance, know that you are going to experience God restoring you to full fellowship with Him as He lifts you up. Amen? Amen. Let's pray. Father, we thank You for the truths of these verses. And as you, the congregation here, are sitting there, I'm just going to give you just one moment. Has God said anything to you out of these verses this morning about some part or some area of life or a relationship that he says, okay, it's time for us to work on that. 
time for you to get a different perspective, my perspective on that, and to walk through this journey that James has talked about this morning. Just take a moment. Is there something that comes to your mind? Does God put something on your heart? Father, I pray for whatever you're saying to whomever you're saying it here now. May you take each one of us either back onto that path of closeness and intimacy with you as we walk in your wisdom or God give us the grace to continue to the honor and glory of your name and to the growth and the future of this church. And Lord, we give you all of this even as we give you ourselves. In the name of Jesus, amen.